Hello, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. It's January the 15th of 2015 today and a little past 10 in the evening. For those of you that are new, I just want to share with you briefly how I'm about to share with you this message. There's a verse in the Word of God that says, if any man minister, let him minister as the oracles of God. Actually, it says, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that's in 2 Peter chapter 4. And that is what I will seek to do in this message. I will seek to allow God to speak his word through me by his spirit to you as an individual who in God's foreknowledge has come across this message to everyone else and to the corporate body of Christ. In doing this, I facilitate this by the casting of lots before God on any particular chapter of the Bible. So there's an equal chance for me speaking on any chapter of the Bible. What I do is I cast lots almost every day of the week, and then I meditate on that chapter for a half an hour as well as taking notes, and then immediately after, I share the message. Now, I don't share the message every day, but I try to share at least once or twice a week, and sometimes by video as I am doing this time as well as it will be on the high pod audio messages on my site at loverealize.com. And I find that when I go through the various chapters I've received in the last six or seven days, I don't even know how they all fit together, but as I begin to speak and trust God by his spirit, his word comes forth and, and time and time again, these messages come forth with a very powerful theme and all the various chapters fit together. And I don't know how that's going to happen today, but I do did sense a burden by the Spirit of God that I was to share a message to the body of Christ for this particular hour. At this time, January the 15th, there has been many events beginning to arise upon the earth, which are the beginnings of rumblings or of birth pangs. We've seen the terrorist attacks in Paris. We've seen various terrorist attacks around the world. And there is indeed a greater and greater foreboding on the horizon of various clouds, various storms, various winds. There's the wind of economic chaos leading to collapse that bursts desperation in the masses. Are they going to follow their base appetites 
follow the bait by which they can manip be manipulated to hate an everlasting fate that will lead them away from the heavenly gate to a realm of darkness and hate. There's a scripture in Isaiah that says, gross darkness will cover the peoples. That's in Isaiah chapter 60. It might be good to just turn there and share a little bit about that first. Before I get into the theme chapter that God is wanting me to share from. And that's in Isaiah chapter 60, where we read, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall rise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to the light, to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. I will not go on beyond that in this ancient prophecy that is speaking about the hour we're living in. Many of you do not even know some of the things that are on the horizon that are forming. We see a lot of the similar cycle of things and events that happened in the 1930s before World War II. We see the rise of anti-Semitism. We see the rise of fascism and Nazism. For example, Greece has the Golden Dawn Party, which is almost totally exactly like the Nazis in so many respects. This has come out of the economic collapse that happened in Greece. This is what's made this party so prominent and powerful. It's not yet elected, but it has significant seats in their government. And there's similar movements that are arising in many countries in Europe's with different names that are almost the same as the Golden Dawn Party. And then I saw a documentary on the blaze at Glen Beck showing about the rise of the Russian Empire. And it was very eye-opening. And you wonder why a lot of this isn't even on the news. People are totally asleep to some of the things that are going on behind the scenes in Russia. I believe the gentleman's name that was in this second of three series of the documentary was Alexander Lupkin or something very close to that if I don't have it exactly right. This gentleman shares in many of the top Russian universities. He teaches philosophy, but he also often sees Putin and many of the top men in the White House. And it was pointed out how he boldly declares he's a fascist and how that they believe Russia can rise to greatness upon the earth and that they are basically a superior people. 
as a nation. And there's four branches. They even have their own symbol. It's not the Nazi symbol, obviously, but it's an occult symbol, which is a symbol that is a sign of creating chaos in the world. Of course, this is also what many of the Muslims believe. They believe the more chaos and violence they can create, it will all the more usher in the return of their iman, which is similar to what you would call their understanding of the Messiah. But with what is happening in Russia, they believe in creating chaos through funding groups like the Golden Dawn Party in Greece or other similar groups, and they are doing that. And there's it was pointed out in the documentary that there were four different branches. There is the um, strong affinity with the Orthodox Church and a tremendous hate against the immorality in the States. And there is terrible immorality in the States and in much of the free world. I don't have time in this message to get sidetracked with a lot that I could share about as far as the events that are about to unfold. God has throughout history used nations to judge nations. And when nations have become immoral and corrupt, God has used other nations to judge those nations and is particularly noteworthy of the nation of Israel. If you read the writings of the prophets and of the historical writings in the word of God. When the nation became corrupt and leadership became corrupt, God allowed those nations to conquer Israel and to bring terrible suffering and judgment to them and to cause them to be scattered to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it was out of the captivity they experienced that they returned back to God and then God brought them back to the land and restored them as a nation in 1948. There's a scripture that says, Judgment must first begin at the house of God. And if it begin first at us, what shall be the end of those that know not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? What I want to share with you today, I will now go through on the various chapters that I have received. And as the Holy Spirit leads, I will begin to share what God is wanting to say particularly to the body of Christ to be prepared for this particular hour when the darkness is becoming very great. We have not seen anything yet. In fact, if you look at the book of Revelations to give you just an idea of the pattern that will unfold to usher in that kingdom that has no corruption in it and that is indestructible, which is the kingdom of God. The events and the patterns are given Clearly, for example, in the book of Revelations, chapter 14. And in Revelations, chapter 14, there are three angels that appear in a certain order, which is indi indicates the order of these events. And it starts in verse 6, and it says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, 
having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. The first angel is preaching a message known as the everlasting gospel. And the emphasis in this message is on fearing God and on the understanding that out of the fear of God, there can come pure worship unto God. And of course, the result of that pure worship unto God is that the kingdoms of this world, which are shakable, which are corruptible, are shaken. So that what is unshakable, which is the kingdom of God, is brought in place of it and remains. And there are many other examples which I could go on for a long time talking about, such as the stone that is cut out without hands from a mountain and fills the whole earth that is described in the book of Daniel and smites the image representing the various nations through the eons of time that are destroyed and replaced by this stone that is cut out of the mountain without hands. I, I know that what I am sharing, and it's not only me but others, is a strong emphasis, as you will discover in even this message, on the fear of God and what that means and what that understanding is. I am preaching what is described here, the everlasting gospel. Among others that God is raising up to preach that, which represent this angel. Now, what's the next event after this angel? Verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is described throughout the book of Revelations in great detail. I've memorized the book of Revelation. Now, I couldn't quote it right now, but at one time I had it fully memorized. And I can say that it says that she sits on many waters which represents peoples and multitudes and nations. The understanding is this, that she is a harlot, which is described as setting upon a beast system in the world. This harlot is described very clearly in Revelations chapter 17. And I don't have time to go into all of that. At one time, in order to be a harlot, you are at one time pure. And then you became a prostitute. If we look at the beginnings, for example, of the United States, there was a time when all the people knew a deep, intimate relationship of fellowship with God and lived a life that was pure and thus wholesome. And there was wholeness in society. But as time went on, we now see that all kinds of immorality are flaunted in the face of God without even being ashamed. 
sexual perversion is promoted in high places and if you don't cater to this minority and other minorities. There's even consequences, the possibility of going to jail. And so this represents this woman that has upon her name, upon, that rides upon, that has upon her head the name Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. It is not only a system that has just existed since the time of the United States, but has existed actually from all the way back to the very beginning, starting with Cain. I don't have time. I'm not focusing on preaching about all of these things here. But it is basically a system that involves someone that is drunken, as described in Revelations, and that makes the inhabitants of the world desensitized and drunk. We see this is the case. There is almost an insanity in people when they, can fa when they fail to face the reality of the consequences of their lives. When they fail to face the reality of even denying their enemy and saying, oh, it's politically incorrect to tell, to use the word Islamic terrorism, for example, or whatever else. This woman represents the free democracies of the world that were once pure, such as was in the beginning of the United States, but over time compromised their relationship with God and bowed to the gods of materialism and pleasure and have been desensitized by the gods of materialism and pleasure. It says in the book of Ezekiel that the sin of Sodom was abundance of bread and pride and idleness. And people are filled with idleness today, especially in the world that is filled with all the comforts of this life and so many pleasures. And they spend much of their time caught up with the gods of amusement and the gods of pleasure. They spend hours watching sports and television. They hardly spend any time in prayer seeking God, and I could go on. And it's condoned even in almost all the churches because there is not a standard raised up in the leadership against these things by living a life that's an example so that people's lives are not occupied with those things that are idle, but rather are redeeming the time, as the Bible says, because the days are evil. So what happens to this world system, which represents not just the United States, but much of the free world that now totally embraces sexual perversion, which brings destruction to the family, family unit and the nation and has been shown to do so throughout history by even books that have written on up to 5,000, if I remember right, 
I'm pretty sure it was 5,000 civilizations were investigated. I didn't even know there was that many. If it wasn't 5,000, it was sure 500. I remember that. And in every case, it was when sexual, sexual perversion was embraced it is destructive to the family unit that those nations soon were destroyed by God allowing other nations to come along in severe judgment upon them. So what is the third angel? The third angel comes after the destruction of this insensitized, desensitized, drunken world system of immorality that flaunts its immorality and blasphemies in the face of God. And so the third angel follows after this system is destroyed. And of course, it describes its destruction here. The destruction of Babylon, Babylon is the destruction by fire. When I saw the documentary on Russia and this man, Alexander Lupkin, says their goal is to destroy the United States and all of these other countries to take them over, Europe and all that, I realized the urgency of the hour we're living in. And out of that destruction, which has been prophesied by men like Henry Groover and even the President of the United States, George Washington, according to the men that were men of integrity that were close to him, had an angelic visitation where he saw all the events that would happen to the United States in the future right up to the end. And he plainly described enemy forces attacking both coasts and pushing in so that it looks like the total of the United States was going to be conquered and destroyed. But then at that time, God's people cry out to him, and God intervenes with angelic intervention, and they push those forces off their shores. That's what George Washington, the President of the United States, according to men of integrity that were next to him, described to them. Men like Henry Groover that have gone before terrorists many times because God calls them to go and march in certain areas and pray around certain areas of the world. And he's gone right into areas where there's terrorists that have told him they're going to kill him. And God has protected him. This man has literally laid down his life to bring forth the light of God in the world. Henry Groover, look him up on the internet. Groover spelled G-R-U-V-E-R has also foretold of this attack how there will be submarines on both coasts of the United States with atomic cruise missiles from Russia and China that will be released. And all the major cities on both coasts will be incinerated. He pointed out that God will warn his people to leave these cities before these events happen. And that it will happen at a time when there's a lot of parades with immorality in the parades. Well, I hope there's some more time in the future before all of these things happen. But after this destruction by fire that is described in Revelation 17, there is an antichrist system. And so the third angel follows, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast 
and his image and receive his mark on his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So there will be a world system that will come forth that will require total submission to a world leader. And you will not be able to buy or sell without some special identity on your hand or on your forehead. And you will have to deny your relationship with God and bow down to the temporal bait that is offered to ensnare people into a place where the rebellion is complete against God so that they are separated in a place that is the opposite of who God is, which is love. God is love. Now, I haven't even got to the scriptures that God gave me this week. But I've created a background for what I want to share about. And I believe that the theme passage that I want to share from particularly and maybe read is going to be John chapter 11. But first I want to touch on to the various chapters that I received this week. Last Saturday, today is Thursday, but last Saturday I received Acts chapter 10. I want to turn to Acts chapter 10. And I want to point out a particular verse in Acts chapter 10, which I believe might be around verse 34. Oh, I could preach for hours on these chapters. And it's Peter. He has a vision in this chapter that basically is telling him to do something that goes against what he has been taught is pleasing to God. He is called to eat unclean animals. But his perception under the vision isn't that he has to eat these unclean animals, as it makes it clear, because he is then told by the Spirit of God that some people are going to come to his house and that he still follow them because there's a man that's been fasting and praying he wasn't told that, seeking God, and the angel visited this man, which was a centurion, a captain of a group, large number of soldiers. He was a man that feared God and was fasting and praying and seeking God. And the angel of the Lord, his prayers came as a memorial before God. And the angel of the Lord appeared before him and said that your prayers have been heard. You're seeking of God and go send men. This man, Peter, is living in a particular place, Simon the Tanner. So they went and brought him. And Peter says this when he comes in to this group of people that God's calling him to meet, which are Gentiles and not Jews, which Peter isn't used to being exposed to. And he says this when he enters in verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. And that was what God was trying to show 
Peter from that vision. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. In this verse, it says that those that fear God are accepted of him. And so I want to explain what it means to genuinely enter into the fear of God, to genuinely fear God. I'm writing a book on this, and I could speak literally for probably days and days without stopping on the fear of God because there's so much to it. Basically, the choice to fear God is a choice to recognize God as ultimately trustworthy because of the way God is constituted, because there's only one thing that can have a constitution that is ultimately trustworthy. And when we don't recognize that constitution or the reality of who God is, there will not be within us a trust towards God that is complete or that it was without that which is lacking in trust. So what is that constitution of God that is so perfect that it cannot be more perfect and can never be less? First, let me define God this way. One of the names for God in the Word of God is the name Yahweh. It means the self-existent one. Another way of pronouncing it is Yehovah. And that's another thing that has to do with vowels and all this other stuff I'm not going to get into. But it's basically the understanding that God is the ultimate source of reality. Another way that it is described in both the Old and New Testament is it says that God is I am that I am. And he describes himself as I am that I am, which is another way of describing ultimate reality. In Hebrew, it is asher ahidya asher. So what is reality? First, the way I'll describe reality is this way. By describing what dictionaries basically describe truth is. They describe truth as that which is real. That is basically, if you, you will find when you look up in various dictionaries, the definition of truth, that which is real. So you look up what the word real and the word reality mean in various dictionaries, and you discover that it basically means that which is unchangeable, everlasting, indestructible. What can possibly be of such an essence? Only one thing. And that is a quality, our constitution, that can be trusted with unlimited power and life and not be corrupted by it. Nor be caught or nor allow unlimited power and life to dissipate. It can contain unlimited life and power without corruption. In other words, it can contain it in a way that is constructive onto greater and greater enlargement 
of fulfillment and creativity. It can contain goodness without the slightest ounce of corruption. Science describes this as well. It says there's two laws in science which are well-established laws that are observed in our universe. There's the first and the second law of thermodynamics. The first law basically says that matter cannot be destroyed. It just changes from one form to another, which infers that something began without a beginning, that there is no beginning. But the second law is the one I want to focus on, which is which says this, that anything left on its own always goes in the direction of greater and greater disorder and chaos to total destructiveness. When we, as free will beings, make choices to go against who God is in his being, we are also left on our own, cut off from the source that has no corruption in it, that is the very constitution that holds life, that is truly fulfilling, that is everlasting, that is ever enlarging in creativity and greater and greater realms of fulfillment. Another way of describing this life is eternal life, which has the understanding of a life that has a quality in it that is of such constitution that it can go on without end, in ever greater quality. What I want to share here about the fear of God is first to describe who God is. God is love, and love is a quality of being that is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of gratification. That is what is known as agape love in the Bible. It is always choosing the highest lasting good. It is beyond mere feelings. God's love is totally free in such choices but it is also a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that would be contrary to such choices. It is innate of God to be a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest thought, word, or deed that would be contrary to his love, his choice to always choose the highest lasting good over any more immediate gratification and fulfillment that would be less than the highest lasting good and therefore would contain corruption in it. It is only this quality of love, which is known as the integrity of God's love, that can possibly contain unlimited life and power without corruption. This is known as the holiness of God. It is the defensive aspect of his love. It is the foundation from which springs such a purity of love that it can be transcendent with the power to forgive and to assure destiny to creation. And if it could not, then it would imply that God is imperfect, for he created a creation without purpose and destiny. But he has provided a way to, ens to ensure that he is also, without violating the integrity of his love, able to assure 
forgiveness to those that repent and receive his mercy. And that mercy is manifested in the fact that in the being of who God is, there is such a purity out of this foundation of the integrity of God's love or the holiness of God that he, God himself, could humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffer more than you, a mere creature. If you can even possibly comprehend the reality of that, so that, you, so that he could take judgment upon himself and absorb it, taste death for you, and swallow that judgment, and conquer that death and rise from the dead as he did in Jesus Christ. Now, another name for God who has this quality of love, which has two aspects to it. It has the foundational aspect of the integrity of love, from which springs this ultimate purity of expression and love, ultimately manifested in the power to become a perfect atoning sacrifice, which the Word of God says happened before the world was created, for it says that God, the Jesus Christ, who is the full expression of God in the time and space, that he was slain before the foundation of the world and before the beginning of the world. That is because in the being of who God is, this love was a reality in these two aspects, the holiness of God and the grace of God or the mercy of God out of which springs the grace of God. I don't want to get into too much detail, but in the Old Testament, mercy has the understanding of mercy and grace. And in the New Testament, there's just the word grace used. So in the New Testament, those two aspects of the being of God are described as truth and grace. And in the Old Testament, they are described as holiness and mercy. But they're basically the same meanings. I don't know where we're going with all of this. I'm hardly getting through anything here. So what I'm wanting to share here is this. One other aspect for those that are new. Another name for God that is often used in the Word of God is the word Elohim. It has the understanding of God being almighty, but that there's a plurality in God, such as in Genesis where it says, let us make man in our image. That does not mean that we worship three gods, as some are misunderstood to believe that we do. No, not at all. God could not be God. He could not be almighty if he could not rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. God in government as the Father is in personage beyond time and space, in conscious intelligence beyond time and space, in entity beyond time and space. The Father has the understanding of God being the originator. That's the understanding of the word Father, is originator. It also has the understanding of God seeing the end from the beginning because he's beyond time and space, which is the understanding in the word Father as one that has had experience through time. The understanding of God in government as the Father is that he is governing and seeing the end from the beginning beyond time and space. And that is the aspect of God 
And if he could not be in personage beyond time and space, then he would not be God. He would not be the true almighty God. And the other aspect of God is that he rules within his creation in the time and space realm. And so God is expressed in to time and space as the Son. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the full expression of God into the time and space realm. In fact, in Hebrews 1.3, it says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. In fact, it says also Christ himself said, whoever was, has been taught and has learned of God as the Father comes unto me, comes to know who I am, has the revelation of who I am is in essence what he was saying. And the Son also said, whoever comes to the Son, well, there's another verse, I've, I've forgotten it, so I won't go into that. Okay. Christ also said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father because he is the full expression of the Father. And then, so God is in personage in the time and space realm as the Son. And as the Holy Spirit, he is filling all space and can be in creativity at all places at the same time and in personage at all places at the same time in creative action because he is attached to every particle of existence that he has created with total intelligence and omniscience is another word for that, an omnipresence. So I'm giving you a rough understanding here because I want to point out something here about this verse in Acts chapter 10 that I was reading, which says, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. There's two aspects to the being of God I was describing. One is the integrity of his love or his holiness, which is represented as a negative symbol, which represents cutting off that which is in rebellion against him. God will not condone the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to the purity of his love. But that also negative symbol or flat symbol can represent foundation. And out of that springs the creativity that is so pure that God became a perfect atoning sacrifice. But this was in his very being, in the reality of who he was even before the world was created because it describes him as the lamb that was slain before the world was created. But in reality, it happened in the center of history in this world. God foreknew what would happen to man. The tree was planted in the Garden of Eden. I don't, Garden of Eden, pardon me. What I want to point out here is this, is that when we choose to fear God, it is a recognition of God and the reality of who he is in these two aspects of his being, the holiness of God and the mercy of God, the truth and the grace of God. It is the recognition that God's love is so pure that he could become a perfect atoning sacrifice. Only he could be a perfect atoning sacrifice to absorb the sin of all creation. If a mere creature could become that, then we would be worshiping a creature and not giving glory to God. God is the source of everlasting life, not a mere creature. And only he could be a perfect atoning sacrifice 
Yes, God is so great that he could have such love that is so pure that he could absorb judgment upon himself and humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffer more than you, a mere creature. And he's not three gods. He's the Elohim, the Almighty's one. And when we recognize God in these two aspects of his being, which is not mere intellectual assent, but a deep turning from the heart, we will be in utter awe of who God is. And we will come to the place of such reverence before God that we will be brought to the place of total humility that will drive us to the place of total honesty to be aware that without God, we are helpless, that we need his mercy, that we are doomed to hell and eternal separation because when you're separated from the very source of love, which contains unlimited life and fulfillment, you are separated into a place that is the opposite of love, which is total torment that goes on forever and ever in such a state of separation. And so the genuine fear of God is a deep turning from the heart of recognition of who God is, that he's ultimately trustworthy and that we, apart from him, deserve judgment. And therefore that we need his mercy. We can never know the greatness of God's mercy to us if we've not entered the genuine fear of God. It is out of the genuine fear of God, recognizing the holiness of God, that we come to see the greatness of his mercy to us personally and therefore the greatness of his love towards us. And when we see the greatness of God's love toward us, we are perceiving what is ultimately trustworthy so that our spirit reaches up in surrender like an open hand and we cry out and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then God in his spirit enters in to dwell with our soul and spirit. This is before the time of Christ. Now it's he indwells us after the time of Christ's crucifixion. So now you have two hands coming together, representing two hands of prayer and also a, a seed, which represents the new divine nature, which is described in 1 John when it says, and this, and whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Our faith involves our spirit in open surrender and recognition out of the fear of God, receiving who God is, the full expression of God to us, which is perceiving Christ and which they receive from the time of Adam and Eve. There has been this everlasting gospel preached from the very beginning that there is one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness because of who he is in his being to be able to have such a pure love that without violating the integrity of his love, he can still provide destiny to creation by assuring forgiveness to those that repent and receive him as a perfect atoning sacrifice. Now I've shared a lot because I want to give you an understanding on this verse. So this is why it says in verse 35, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. Because those that truly fear God are those that receive who God is in his being 
of holiness and mercy or truth and grace. They will receive the atoning work of God. And they are born again of the Spirit. And that has happened from the time of Adam and Eve till now. Oh, you say, how can that be so when it says that God's going to give them a new heart in Jeremiah? Very simple. There's always been a remnant that has experienced new birth. But as a nation, he is describing what will happen to them when they are converted as a nation in the last days. I could go on with all of this, but this is not where the focus is to be here. I want to speak to the body of Christ. I don't even know how long I've been teaching because I have, I do think I can get an idea. Uh, anyhow, I've lost track of the time because I didn't turn my watch on, but I will continue until I sense the Lord is telling me not to share anymore. That's a lot to go into just to explain one little verse in Acts 10, verse 35, as to how God can accept everyone that fears him and works righteousness. Because those that genuinely receive who God is will be transformed. They will have his being his new nature in them that will cause them to live a righteous life. I'm not going to ch touch on all the chapters that I received this week. I'm going to just go to um, John chapter 8. I'm going to try to just share on this passage of scripture here the bit of time I have left to minister particularly to the body of Christ. Now this chapter is too long for me to read. So I will basically describe what is in this chapter. The first part of this chapter is describing Lazarus who was someone that Christ knew. Mary was the one that came before the feet of Christ in full appreciation for what Christ did for her in forgiving her her sins. And in for, she broke an alabaster box and wiped her hair with tears at his feet. And Lazarus was Mary's brother, and he passed away. Christ wasn't there. And it's a, it's a very emotional story. I even wept a bit when I read it. Christ received, a messenger comes to Christ who's in another area, telling them that Lazarus is dead. And he still doesn't come, even though he's dead for a while. And then he returns. And I will just read little parts here of what happened. But before I do, I want to point out a few things. The disciples had, that were with Christ did not want to go back to where Mary and Lazarus were because they were threatened with death if they came back there. And it says this in verse 8, His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou hither again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in a day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. 
But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. What is Christ saying there? He's saying that they're going back to Lazarus. And, and here's the conclusion of um, one of the disciples as we go on reading here. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go, that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. well I won't go into all of that. Christ plainly tells him Lazarus is dead. And then this is the response of one of the disciples. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So Thomas already has made up his mind that when they go back, they're going to be killed. He's totally focused on the negative. But what Christ said, he said this. He said, if any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. Thomas was like that person that was not looking at the light. He was just looking at the darkness and at the consequences of what would happen if they went back. His focus was on the consequences in a, actually a very noble way in a sense because he had decided, yeah, I'm willing to be a martyr for Christ. I'm willing to lay down my life. And he had resigned himself to the fact that that was what was going to happen. But what God is trying to point out to his people here is that we that are children of the light do not dwell on the darkness. Now, when people fall in to a place where they lose the fear of God, they get a distorted image of God. And I wrote a little bit about this in my book, and this is in rough form. So I'm going to read a paragraph here concerning this because this parallels also a wrong focus on God even like Thomas had just a total dwelling on the darkness of the situation he was about to face and became very religious about it to the point that he was willing to sacrifice his life but this is what I say in relation to God this is because this is in regards to offense. When people begin to rebel against the consequences of God's holiness, that is the integrity of his love, which has resulted in such suffering in the world because, like the second law of thermodynamics, we have been cut off because of choices against his love. And we get upset about all the suffering in our own lives personally we can begin to take offense at God, especially if we've been trying to seek him and serve him all our life and all kinds of things seem to go wrong. And so I wrote this in regards to offense that can so easily happen towards God. Such offense also is internalized in an independence of withdrawal from God that begins by perceiving God as some kind of enigma. This then leads to feeding this alienating offense with a less than ultimately trustworthy perception of God that as such is idolatrous and then can lead over time to the belief in many gods, such as that God is an alien being from outer space. Over time, this again can lead to the belief in one idolatrous God that unites the divisions and wars over the belief in many gods. 
you can think of where this has happened. There's an example of an idolatrous perception of God in certain religions today. Need I name it? This idolatrous perception that at first begins with the belief supposedly in one true God starts with rebellious offense against the integrity of God's love and required judgment with its consequences of suffering in the world and to one personally. One focuses on the negative consequences so that one develops a perverted view of God's holiness. This is because of losing sight of it as the foundation against all corruption that would negate it as the source and container of unlimited power and life that can expand and enlarge forever in goodness. The result is a perverted view of a God that claims to be holy and demands submission without any goodness that overflows out of the integrity of God's love with the power to assure mercy and forgiveness to the repentant. The other self-deceiving, idolatrous image of the one true God starts with beginning to deny the integrity of God's love and required judgment. That's to deny the God's holiness, the severity of God's holiness, so that one does not recognize the greatness of God's mercy and love out of his holiness. Thus, one does not have genuine repentance and perceives God as accepting of corrupting religious beliefs and immorality. This is more a denial of the integrity of God's love and judgment and a perversion of God's forgiveness and goodness that allows it to contain corruption, which would mean it would not endure without end. In this passage, we see a basic principle. Remember I was talking about how in the last days gross gar darkness would cover the peoples, but the glory of God would shine on those that really have a relationship with God. And so we see a little illustration of this, that if we dwell on who God is, the goodness of who God is, in the midst of the darkness that we see in our own lives around us and in this world, we will <clears throat> not stumble. We will not fall into a trap where we buy in to the darkness. And Lazarus, and in this passage here, this is so well illustrated in what happened to the disciples. And I said it this way in this first division from verses 1 to 16 on this event. I said, when facing threatening darkness, it is easy to focus on the darkness and fall into the sleep of denial or even surrender to the, to the worst by choosing to be a sacrifice of God. One should rather focus on the light of God that can lead away from the darkness with deliverance as well as fearless sacrificial surrender. We still face without fear our lives before the darkness in surrender. But our focus is on the light of God. Now, then what happens in this passage of Scripture is Christ comes back and there's Martha and there's Mary that broke the alabaster box at his feet. And this is in verse 17 all the way to verse 44. I'm not going to read this whole event, but basically what happens is the Lord says, Mary says, if you 
were here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. He says the same to Martha, but they're already resigned to the fact that Lazarus is dead. And so Martha can only believe that Christ is talking about the last days. So she says to him, even though she has this faith, she says, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. But then she says, yeah, I know he'll rise in the last days. He did, she still didn't clue in she was still dwelling on something of the future, not believing in the power of God to be released at that moment. But Christ says that I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now, with Mary, she comes a little later, very heartbroken, and says, Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Why was this allowed to happen to me, the one that broke my living before you, a whole year's living? I poured it out as perfume before your feet because I love you so much. And I was so filled with appreciation for your deliverance in my life and your forgiveness in my life. And yet this happened in my life. And the same thing will happen in many of our lives in our pilgrimage with God. We'll have a wonderful relationship with God, like Mary did, that sat at his feet and sacrificed all the busyness of this life by pouring out her life as a broken alabaster box of perfume before God, and yet still experienced these type of things happen in her life where even though God is so in her life, she loses something that is the dearest to her, Lazarus, or one of the dearest to her. And so I, this is the statement I want to read in regards to this. A life outpoured in love out of thankfulness for God's mercy at the feet of the Lord involves thankfulness to break those things that are precious to us before the Lord is a love offering. Even then, there are trials that will break us of the loss of those things that are precious to us. However, the focus then must be on the glory of God to be revealed is greater than those things. This requires that we have confidence that God hears us and call forth resurrection over the death experiences. Then we will know the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe that the grave clothes of death can no longer enshroud the glory of God from shining through us in its fullness. So here's what happened. Christ begins to weep. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is with Mary's. And he tells him to take the stone away. And he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth with the grave clothes on. And all these people see it and are utterly amazed and shocked. And Christ says, get the grave clothes off him so he can walk freely. Basically, that's what he's saying. And this is a picture of what happens to us when we have a reciprocating, intimate relationship with God that is unconditional, regardless of how dark the circumstances are in our lives personally and corporately as the body of Christ. When we learn to rest through the storm and to trust God and to have a faith like that that can trust 
because we are persuaded in who God is beyond all of those circumstances, then there can be the release of the greatness of God's power to us. The word of God says that faith works by love. And it's when we perceive who God is, his love, which is these two aspects I've been talking about, the, the purity of his love. Do you know that it's out of the holiness of God, which is the integrity of his love, that issues wholeness? Because it is that that contains what has no corruption in it. And it is out of wholeness that issues beauty. And it is out of beauty that issues the glory of God. And when we focus on who God is and are persuaded because of the revelation of that love to us personally in his mercy or his grace, his favor to us, to have shown mercy and to have received us by giving us his presence and his spirit and everlasting life. When we recognize that and dwell on that in the midst of the trials that are to come on the body of Christ corporately in these last days and us as individuals, the glory of God will fill us to such a degree that the grave clothes will no longer be able to limit God in our lives. The limitations in our lives of God's power in our lives personally will fall off, just like Christ commanded them to take those grave clothes off Lazarus, those shrouds of death. The more we learn to dwell on the light and who God is. You see the word faith, in the New Testament, it's from the Greek word pistis, which means moral persuasion. It's moral persuasion in who God is to us personally in the midst of the trials that is unshakable, that brings resurrection out of every death experience so that the greater the trials, the greater the transformation, the greater the resurrection in our lives. And that is also the same similar word that is used in the Old Testament when it says that Abraham believed God. It has the under, it's, the, it's from the word amen, which is a word for faith. It has the understanding of being fully persuaded in who God is despite the circumstances. Abraham was fully persuaded and he hoped against hope. Oh, I could go on and talk a lot more about this faith that issues out of the revelation of God's love to us personally, of his mercy to us personally, that brings a response. That's what brings an under, a perception of God's ultimate trustworthiness that results in the response of our spirit. Faith works by love, the revelation of God's love and faith response. It is as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord that we are to walk in him. That's how we receive Christ. We responded to his mercy. And it is the way we are to abide in him. Paul the apostle said, we were pressed beyond measure so that we even despaired of life itself in some of our trials. 
But he said that was allowed so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God that raises the dead. Now, the other passage I received this week that is very significant in relation to what I am talking about was 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is describing how he had a thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'd love to read it and go for another long time preaching on this, but there's no time for that. These videos are limited in the time I can have them running. But I do have basically some things I've written about this. Paul is describing how he was taken out of his body and had a powerful revelation where he was caught up into paradise and heard words that he was not even allowed to utter. And he says this in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And then he says this, And he said unto me, And for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. People would have tended to look up too highly to Paul the Apostle. So God allowed things to happen to him so that they would not look up too highly to him. So he says, lest I should be exalted above measure, that is in the eyes of the people, and also to keep him in the place of humility. God allowed these things. And I made notes on this, and I don't know always whether it's worth I guess I can read it. When separated from our body, there is the transformed and glorious new creation in Christ. But when we dwell in our body, there is the non-transformed of the body and spiritual being that has not been enlarged in perfection, if indeed it has reached perfection. It is glorying in the infirmities of the old non-transformed part of us that keeps us in the place of humility out of the fear of God so that man will not look up to us too highly beyond who we really are, nor that we should do the same unto ourselves. This keeps us in the place of abiding dependence and trust in God that allows God's glory to work through us without hindrance from our own self-deceptions of self-glory and self-trust. In the other section, verses 11 to 21, Genuine love, especially for the body of Christ, when fully outpoured in good works and humility out of the presence of God, may very well cause rejection and misunderstanding, but is not quenched in its love towards such, but rather absorbs the experience of death to grow even more in love towards such. This is from further on in this chapter where Paul says this. He says, truly, for example, in verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you, in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And then he goes on and he says this. 
in verse 15, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. The sign of true leadership in the body of Christ, like the Apostle Paul had, is that the more abundantly you love others, the less it seems they love you. Why is that? Why is that? For two reasons, which I want to just share here. I have it in my notes, but I, the way I put it in my notes is this. Um, one of the reasons this love is rejected that we give to others is because it does not exert its authority in control. And yet at the same time, as that is the case, this love seeks a genuine response from the heart. It, it, it's because, and that's why there's no control. And yet at the same time, it reproves sin to bring conviction and repentance. So on the one time you're reproving people, on the other hand, you're not domineering and controlling. When you have that combination, that can easily be the case. Christ said if people came in their own name, that they would receive them. But because he comes in his Father's name, he is rejected. Because God is the same as what Paul is showing here. He doesn't want to control people. He wants people to respond from their heart, and yet he is severe at reproving sin. God is calling his people in this hour to come forth and be who God's called them to be as the body of Christ to genuinely love one another. To genuinely see beyond one another's faults. When we have a right view of God, we will have a right view of one another. When we have a true reverence of who God is, the genuine fear of God, we will also, as it were, wash one another's feet with the word of God. Because there will be love in us to see past one another's faults and to want to bring the best out of one another by not being domineering and controlling because we don't like the things in that other person, but rather allowing ourselves to have patience with them, to draw the grace of, to draw them out of the darkness that they're dwelling on, and yet at the same time to be salt and to reprove those things that are not of God in them. It is our dwelling on the negative that stops us from seeing the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ and thus seeing the beauty of his holiness. And it is also what stops us from seeing the beauty of God in one another. But God is calling us not to know anyone after the flesh, even Christ after the flesh but we are to know one another after the Spirit of God. And that requires that we have this reciprocating relationship with God out of the fear of God. 
that causes us to be fully persuaded in who God is in the darkest of situations and relationships with others as well as in our own circumstances and corporately in the body of Christ for this hour so that we can see through the darkness and therefore break through the darkness and call forth people out of their grave clothes of death that have enshrouded them into the place of relationship and authority with God to do the greater works in these last days. That is what God is saying to the body of Christ in this day and age and in this hour. Thank you for listening to this message.